you know, I actually had lunch with a friend, a really good friend of mine, and we were having a race conversation about sort of black and white tension. This is years ago. And he says to me in complete earnestness and complete, like he, he meant it in like the kindest, most accepting, most affirming way. He looked at me and he said, I've always thought of you as white. And at that moment, Nick, I couldn't decide whether that was like a compliment or the most racist thing I've ever heard. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show where I talk with people who are trying to live a meaningful life, people who give a damn. If you enjoy this podcast, please do me a massive favor and leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on whichever podcast app you use to listen to the show. It would mean the world to me. Friends, my guest this week is incredible human and return guest Richard Lee. Richard is the Global Officer of Public Engagement at International Justice Mission, the Director of Advancement at the Asian American Christian Collaborative, and an advisory board member at One Day's Wages, and so much more, but we'll get into more of that on the show. During the past 12 months, the United States has seen a steep decline in many kinds of violence. But during this same 12-month period, however, acts of violence against Asian Americans has skyrocketed by 150%. 3,800 recorded acts of violence. That number is horrifically insane. But it's also no wonder to me why this is happening, and we briefly get into that on the show, so I won't spoil it for you here. Richard is a Korean American whose parents immigrated here from Korea several decades ago. Richard does a great job in our chat sharing his story of assimilation and struggles that he has had as a Korean American, and he also helps us understand what's going on and how all of us can help push back on the disgusting rise of senseless acts of violence against our Asian American neighbors and friends. Before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with damn giver extraordinaire, Richard Lee. Let's go. Richard Lee, my friend, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast again. <laughs> What's going on, Nick? It's good to be back. It's so good to see your face. Uh, this time we're actually seeing each other's face. Last time we recorded just our audio, and now <laughs> now I get to see your handsome face. Yeah, it's been a couple years uh, since, right. since you and I talked, and I'm really thrilled. Uh, some people might have listened. Some people might have listened to that you know podcast a couple years ago, but so much has evolved. Uh, and right. we're going to go after some specific uh, things that are happening in culture and society here in the U.S. right now. So I'm very thrilled to have you here on the podcast again. And and thank you for doing it so last minute. Like some of this is like super time sensitive. And I tried to get you last weekend and I uh, 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 flaked out, not <laughs> not because I was being irresponsible. Life was just so intense and busy last week. Uh, and then I then I texted you again like six hours ago. And was like, dude, let's. So, were you really sorry the first time? I was because you did it again. I was very, <laughs> I was very sorry. And then, yeah, like literally six hours ago. I mean, it was it was early afternoon here in Central Standard Time that I was like, dude, let's do it today or tomorrow. And you were like, yeah, let's do it tonight. So you're you're a gem. You're amazing. Thanks so much for uh, being here. Uh, no problem. 
Many people will probably, I don't even remember all your story and I interviewed you two years ago. So let's start with just some of the basic stuff. I mean, you're, you're just a fascinating human. You've done a lot of incredible things. So let's start with just your story. Go back as far as you want to and give us the who, what, when, where, and why of uh, your life. Let's start there. Yeah. So I was born in America. My parents immigrated here to the United States from Korea. So I'm Korean American. Um, my parents are first generation Korean immigrants. Um, they met and married here, which is a little bit unconventional as Korean uh, immigrants go. Um, but I, I was raised um, here in New Jersey and, you know, basically lived a life as an Asian American, uh, Korean American, you know, really trying to be white. You know, I'm, I lived in a pretty diverse area in terms of Asian diversity, um, but it was predominantly white and it was definitely like a white culture, you know, uh, upper middle class suburb sort of feel. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think I really sort of thought about assimilation as the goal, right? Mm. You know, racially. Yep. Um, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, a bit more. But, you know, as I've gone through life and and realized not just looking at my parents and the people that, you know, in the immigrant population that weren't able to be as quite assimilated, you know, there was something in me that I think got ignited um, to seek out and speak up for the vulnerable. Um, now, I don't want to overstate my my uh, willingness to do that as a, you know, 16-year-old high school student. Sure. But I think there was something born in me that really uh, got a first... Uh, got an up-close glance at what it was like for someone to be vulnerable in the society, either because of the culture, because of the language, because of their standing in society, and to see how there are different sort of uh, concentric circles um, or striations in terms of their ability to uh, function, you know, easily within society. Hmm. Now, as you think on your younger years, well, one thing before I even get there. So your parents uh, emigrated separately from Korea. Right. And around the same time, were they around the same age? They just didn't know each other? Or what, what was the, was there an age difference? Or did they both literally? Yeah, no, they met, they met here. Right. Um, and so they didn't know each other. Um, most like Korean immigrant families were like a small family unit. Um, and like the parents moved over with young kids or something like that, you know, the American dream sort of a thing. My, pa my parents, my dad actually went to medical residency, uh, up in Massachusetts okay. and which was a pretty uncommon thing. I mean, just think about this, Nick, right? Like, um, think about sending your, your, your child comes home from college and med school and they go, I'm going to go halfway around the world for my red medical residency. And basically he started his life over, right? Like, I mean, he, he's been back to Korea a couple of times, right. but he started his whole life over. Imagine, you know, in 1970, you know, in the 1970s and that late 1960s, someone moving halfway across the world to basically start their life over. I mean, it's just a fascinating story. Really. You should have him on. Yeah. Maybe I will. Maybe yeah. I will. What was the, do you know what the impetus was? Like why, uh, first of all, why, you know, come over here when he had done, I presume he had done school in Korea, right? Back home, right? Yeah. For, yeah. The undergrad. Like why come here and why specifically to, was he in Boston? You said Massachusetts. Boston or where? where? Springfield. Okay. Springfield. Yeah. Why, why there and not anywhere else? Yeah. I mean, I let's think back, right? To, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Um, America was on top of the world, right? Like Korea was definitely not 
what it was. I mean, this is before K-pop. This is before, sure. uh, you know, Minari and Parasite and, and you know, Korean cosmetics and before like the 88 Olympics, right? I feel like the 88 Olympics put Korea on the map oh, interesting. for a lot of people. Um, when I, before 1988, everybody was like coming up to me and they were like, are you Chinese? Are you Japanese? Then what are you? And oh, then wow. after, after the Olympics, it was, are you Chinese? Are you Japanese? Are you Korean? Then what are, you know, that, that, that's sort of how it went in order. Korean sort of got added to the mix after 88. Right. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people really knew about South Korea before the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, it's a different world, right? I mean, that's 88. So, I mean, your listeners, some of them are probably born after that. Uh, let's just put, yeah, let's say most of them were not around, <laughs> weren't, weren't a twinkle in their parents' eyes at that point. That's right. So when you were growing up, um, what was it like? So, so a lot of our conversation today is yeah. there's some urgency around it because there is a lot of, uh, sense there, there are so many senseless acts of violence and hatred toward, you know, yeah. uh, AAPI people in this country right now. Was that even remotely a thing when you were a kid? Like, how did you feel? I know you said that you were like trying to be white in some ways. And there was this whole assimilation right. thing, which I know a little bit about, not in the same way, being the son of a Guatemalan immigrant growing up in Guatemala, coming here, I, I understand feeling super out of place. Yeah. Uh, did you ever feel discriminated against? Uh, how were, was your like friend group? What was that like growing up as a, as a Korean kid? You know, it's, it, it's such a multi-layered, uh, answer, um, that I'm, I feel like I'm even just now beginning to sort of unearth in a lot of ways. But what I could say is, I mean, certainly there was discrimination. Certainly there were playground insults. I mean, middle school boys can be ruthless, yep. you know, in on sports teams and locker rooms and at recess and things like that. I mean, ruthless, right? And I just remember um, there were times where it felt like people were just making fun of me because that's something that was they that they saw about me. Right. Like, so if you wore glasses and we made fun of you because you wore glasses, yeah. they made fun of me because I was Korean. Um, and so some of it was like playful poking around, but some of it was definitely like discriminatory and racist. Um, and the, the thing is that it was, it was a constant, right. It was a, um, a daily sort of occurrence. Um, and I think actually in many ways for many Asian people, it still is a daily occurrence, right? My, you know, children uh, go to a pretty uh, diverse school in terms of Asian representation, but it is still, you know, they, they, there will be people that play, uh, poke fun uh, in those ways as well, like even now. But I think at the time, what I had realized was the Asian culture um, that was basically don't make, keep your head down and don't make trouble. Mm. right? Do your job, do it well, don't cause trouble. And I think part of that is think about my parents, right? My parents immigrate here and they barely speak the language. I mean, they, they speak it pretty well, but there's so many Asian Americans, uh, I'm sorry, Asian immigrants that come over, don't speak the, the, the language right. well. They don't know right. the culture well and really never can assimilate into the culture. And so as they're going about their business, as they're going out to restaurants, as they're going out to groceries and, you know, going out around society, I think there's a lot of it, which is like basically like, just keep my, I just want to be invisible. Like, just don't notice me. Let me just go about, get my groceries, go get, you know, my, uh, go, go to the restaurant, yep. go do what I need to do and not be exposed for someone who doesn't know the language and doesn't know the culture. 
So some of that translates to the second generation, me and my brothers, as keep your head down, don't make trouble, just you know, be glad that you're here and given the opportunities here in America that you have. That's such a, a, a fascinating dynamic. I'm going to, I'm going to deviate from our, our focus on, you know, uh, the AAPI people for a second. You know, there's this viral video right now. Uh, it seems like people of color cannot win in this country, right? Like yeah. there's this, this video, this situation right now about this, um, that Lieutenant, right? The black Lieutenant yeah. that got stopped and right. Like, it, it it bothers me so deeply. It bothers me so deeply that white exceptionalism and American exceptionalism is even a thing. Like, yeah. I'm fine living here, but I have very little, like, pride and, like, I'm not a very good, um, uh, or, I, I, or I should say, I think I'm actually a very good citizen of this country, but a lot <laughs> of people would think that I'm not. Because right. I will, I I haven't said the Pledge of Allegiance in years. I probably will never say it again. I don't stand and bow for a flag, like all all of. But but I you know serve the poor and give and donate and all these different things, sure. right? But it's just it's wild to me that American exceptionalism exists when you look at these situations happening, right? And I don't want to jump too far ahead because I do want to talk a little bit more about kind of some of the stuff you're doing before we jump in to these other things, but. It is wild that you have to, that you as a kid, and now, you know, decades later, there are still millions of people that have to have that mindset, right? This is not a 60s thing, 70s thing, 80s thing. This is an American thing, where if you're a person of color, if, you, if you're a first, second, third generation immigrant, keep your head down, don't make trouble, just, just get by and don't cause a scene and you'll be okay. But if you stray from that, if you do decide to be bold, if you decide to speak up, like, like some bad shit's going to happen to you, right? Like that is such a wild, it's, it's so disheartening. It's so disheartening. Yeah. You know, it's something that I have actually learned a lot from, uh, black friends and, and, and just in my conversations with them, um, you know, throughout life, but really over the last, you know, couple months or last year, um, just thinking about this idea of assimilation, right? That no matter how assimilated you would become, they would never not be seen as black. Yeah. And for Asian Americans, and let let it be known, right? There is no monolith of Asian Americans. There is no, mon I'm speaking, you know, even Korean Americans, right? My parents have a different experience. My kids have a different experience. And even people my age have different experience. I'm speaking of my experience. But as an Asian American, there's, the, the path of assimilation was actually possible, I think, in a lot of ways, mm. because we weren't seen like so many, we weren't seen as threats like black and brown people have been in white society. But then what happens is a China from a, a, a virus from China makes it way, makes its way here. And all of a sudden we are a threat. We are expendable in society and we are easily cast aside because we don't have the voice. We don't have that, that, um, uh, authority in our, uh, Asian Americanness, right? There isn't this loud, uh, Asian American conglomerate that is really taking up space, um, and has been for years. And so, uh, it's very easy for us to sort of be, be cast aside. And I've been saying for years, it, you know, not about the, the pandemic, but actually about North Korea. I mean, North Korea for uh, many years has been a, a huge threat to the United States. Right. And if 
North Korea ever went to war with the United States, I mean, my assimilated, you know, comfortable existence in society would be gone yep. overnight. And, um, and so that's why for me, it, it's taken me decades to realize assimilation is a lie, right? Because it's, it's me trying to, to become white um, and pass as white. And for the most part, you know, you know, you can just sort of get by, you can sort of be, uh, operating in society as off white, um, you know, yeah. and, and just get by, you know, I actually had lunch with a friend, a really good friend of mine, and we were having a race conversation about sort of black and white tension. This is years ago. And he says to me in complete earnestness and complete, like he, he meant it in like the kindest, most accepting, most affirming way. He looked at me and he said, I've always thought of you as white. And at that moment, Nick, I couldn't decide whether that was like a compliment right. or the race, most racist thing I've ever heard. Yep. Right. And the reality is, I think it's both. Yeah. At that time for me, it was both. I, it was a compliment because it was basically affirming the way that I had lived my life for decades, trying to be white. Now, I'd never admit that. But look at how I lived. Look at where I, you know, went to school. Look at where, what, you know, all of these different things. And so I, I uh, looked at that and was like, that's affirmation that I've been chasing the wrong wow. goal. Did you, if, if you think back on that lunch, did anything change after that for you? Was it, was it just like a, a moment where you realized, oh, this is, this is happening. This is a reality. Let's see how it plays out. Or did you say, I don't want that to be something that anyone ever says to me again, because A, I mean, that's the equivalent of all these like, you know, parents saying, you know, like, oh, I teach my kids not to see color. Like, and I'm like, right. what? That's the worst thing ever. Like right. the color, the the differences, the, the ethnic, you know, kind of bouquet that we live in is the beautiful part. Don't not see color, right? It's the equivalent right. of that. Like, do you remember anything changing and how you lived, behaved, or, or yeah. You know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. It's a, again, multi-layered, right? Because, um, I remember growing up and being assimilated and accepted by my friends because I spoke really good English, right? Without an accent that I would look at other Asian people who spoke with accents or barely spoke English in my school. And when we would be grouped together, I'd sort of look at them and be like, hey, dude, like, get it together. Like, I've made it. Like, hurry up. Assimilate. Wow. And then I'd look at my parents, and I, I mean, I'll tell you, man, this is like, this is going to blow your mind, right? Like, I would go over my friends' house houses. I rarely had friends over. Mm. And I don't think I knew why, but I know why now. And it's because I was embarrassed of the the, the, you know, accent that my mom would speak with. I was embarrassed of the food in my refrigerator, you know, the paintings on the walls, the blankets on the beds, the, the, the shoes in the front door. Like, I mean, I wasn't aware of that at 14 years old, but I'm aware now that I look back and go, oh yeah, there was shame involved in that. And so when you think about this idea of like, well, like what broke in that lunch, it was, I think for me, a realization that, that assimilation's a lie. You've seen this, the, the end goal. This, you know, successful white person sees you as white, accepts you as white, 
and you're receiving that as, oh, dude, that's really racist. And so my, my, the, the, the way that I am most palatable to a white person is if you see me as white, like, no, that's, that's not okay. Like that's, that can't be the goal. And so I think over the last couple of years, there's been a breaking, a decoupling of that from sort of my goal and my, you know, ambition. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, it happened very late in my life, Nick, and it, you know, it's been, it's been quite a journey, especially over this last year. Yeah. So let's talk about this, this, this last year, these last 12 months, right? Um, I don't want to make this political. Um, so I'll try not to, but there, it's all, it is also at the same time, impossible not to mention some very, um, correlative, uh, sort of things, right? Uh, the pandemic begins early 2020. Um, our former commander in chief starts referring to this as the Chinese virus and people in his immediate orbit, uh, you know, said things like the Kung flu and, and, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, uh veiled, well, not veiled to me, but the, you know, let's just call it veiled racism and veiled, uh, xenophobia. There was a lot of things happening, right? Alongside that, no coincidence whatsoever, we have seen, you know, in a year when everybody stayed home, right? Mm -hmm. So there are, there's a sharp, you look at the statistics, there's a sharp decline in violence overall, like in the street and otherwise. In the same year that you see a steep decrease in violence across the board, you see a 150% increase in violence against Asian Americans. Again, I don't see that as a coincidence, right? So there's right. all the way from the very top of the government and many layers down to even local governments. Uh, and then a lot of the followers of this former commander in chief, uh, there's, there's a lot of that happening. So yeah. How have you talk to me about your experience this past year? It'll, will lead up to some of the kind of more crazy, horrific things that have happened even over the last month, uh, which have, which have been just horrible. And they've, I mean, they've kept me yeah. up. I've been sick to my stomach, like just trying, just racking my brain, trying to figure out how do I get involved here? What can I do? How do I continue to, you know, train myself to be an anti-racist and raise anti-racist kids? Um, yeah. but you as, uh, an AAPI, uh, American citizen, What's this last year been like for you? Did you notice it happening? Did you notice the correlation between Kung flu and China virus and this rise in violence? Yeah. I also don't want to be political, but I will comment about, you know, the things that I think specifically have contributed to this racialized violence. And that is when you use words uh, like, you know, the, you know, Wuhan virus and Kung flu and China virus, um, I mean, there's a reason why the WHO has specifically moved away from naming these viruses based on region right. because of the racial rhetoric that happens. You know, the 1918 virus is unfortunately still called the Spanish flu. But even back then, they were trying to get away from it because, you know, it was creating a sense of racism. But so when you talk about this idea and create this racialized narrative of, you know, Chinese people, Asian people are infected with this virus, um, you know, then you have people who, you know, I'm, you know, I, I remember early on trying to correct the narrative and being like, no, like it's, a, it's all it, in Italy, 
right now. It's, you know, off it's, it's going crazy in Italy. And I remember hearing people, oh yeah, that's because there are a lot of Chinese people in Italy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you, you're, you're not getting it. You're not understanding what it is. Now, if you understand like all of the different, uh, the the ways that the uh, the racial the racist uh, outspoken people mm-hmm. who used to be maybe closeted racists and would say it around the dinner table are now saying it online are now saying it on Facebook you know mostly in the comments right and they're saying these things that are they're they're galvanized they are empowered and given a platform and a voice and their voice is legitimized because of the the racialized rhetoric that they're hearing yep. from the news stations that you know they're seeing them on and the people that uh you know politicians and you know leaders that are actually being out go going out there and saying those things um and when you get down to you know yeah I, you know yes asian americans have had a very bad year for the last 12 months because of this you know the the um covid-19 however when you look at the asian american history um of racial uh, tension racial violence in america um you know i mean there's so many different examples of that happening but i bet most of your listeners probably aren't aware of all of the different things that have happened and i would bet that because I wasn't even aware of all the, I've had to learn about some of those things. And, but, but that's the Asian experience is that these things happen to Asian Americans. Nobody speaks up. They don't make a big fuss because they're keeping their head down and they're not making trouble. And I think that day is over. Like that day for Asian Americans to just keep our head down and don't make trouble is not it. We need to move on past that. You know, John, the late John Lewis says, get in good trouble, right? Like we, as Asian Americans, we need to get in some good trouble in order to um, let people know about what the experience for Asian Americans is. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a very interesting observation and I think it's 100% true. Something, the last five years, there's been a lot of crazy things that have happened. We won't begin to name them, it's a long list. But one of the amazing things that has happened as a result of a lot of the outspoken uh, 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 hatred and violence and xenophobia that, one of the positive things that's happened is that people are done standing by and watching, right? If you look back, you know, last year, you know, right now, uh, we, we, we've got the, the, the trial of Derek Chauvin happening, right? Uh, he, you know, murdered George Floyd, uh, coming up on a year ago. I don't know what triggered, I don't know what was different other than it being just horrific to watch and observe and, 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 and you know, be alive when this is happening, but I don't know why, you know, it didn't, ha- th- this big, humongous, like world changing revolution didn't happen with Trayvon Martin and Freddie Gray and all these others, like big things happen, riots in the streets, marches, but something happened. And, you know, you look back, uh, uh, you know, we just, just last week was Dr. King's, you know, death anniversary. And you look at some of his last speeches, right? The March on Washington, and it's it's mostly it's ninety nine percent black people that are there, right? And the, and then right. a few white allies. Last summer, when millions took to the streets, it was there were a lot of white people and a lot of Hispanics and a lot of Asians joining up with black people all over the place to say enough is enough. We're not standing by anymore. And so that is interesting that 
for a culture, uh, you know, a whole group of people that have historically been told. Uh, now I'm back talking about you know AAPI people that like just yeah. just just don't make trouble, stand by. Right. Yeah, maybe this what's happening right now this last year is the straw that broke the camel's back, and now it's no, we can't do that anymore. This is going right. to continue to happen. One of the, you know, racism to get more racists weren't created over the last four to five years. They were already there. Right. They were just given. Right. They were just given permission to, like as you said, it it the, it went from the the thoughts or maybe their dinner table with their homies to now, you know, on, on the keyboards, on social media, out loud, you know, yeah. on these like. I mean, these countless social media videos that you can find of just horrible things being, you know, spewed. And so there's not, there's not any more racist now than there were before. It's just now they've, they, they've gotten louder and more vocal and they feel like they can be, uh, 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 true and they, they true to who they are and they can like speak that out. And so that is interesting that maybe to your point, maybe this is a time when more, obviously we want more allies to come in more me's and more, you know, other people to come in and support Asian Americans. But also maybe this is a time for Asian Americans to like also stand up and say, we can't be quiet anymore. This happens to me all the time. This is not unique. It happened to me last week. It happened the week before. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and to stop standing by and just lowering your head and just doing the work. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that that's what the Atlanta murders that happened and the subsequent quieting and diminishing of the Asian community saying this was racialized violence, where the white police officer interviews the white suspect and takes the white the, the murderer's word that, no, it wasn't racially motivated. And then in the press conference, it's like, well, I guess it wasn't racially motivated then. Meanwhile, every Asian woman knows that, that Asian massage parlors is tied inextricably to racism because of the fetishization and dehumanization and the sexualization of Asian women. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, it's just like this, this furthering of the quieting of and, and disregarding of the Asian American voice. And so I think that was a galvanizing moment for our community, for Asian Americans to say, no, 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 like that's enough. We need to speak up. And I think for far too long, like Asian Americans, and I put myself right there, Asian Americans have been too comfortable and sitting by and watching uh, white society and just sort of navigating seamlessly within white society, passively accepting the benefits of a privileged system. And They've been passively sitting by and watching black people fight and die in the streets on the behalf of the rights of all people of color. And so we have this very, we've been sort of operating in this, in this moment where we can sort of receive the benefits that the black people are making in, in, for people of color, but we're also accepted by white people. So when things, you know, get too tense, we can sort of go back and, and sit comfortably in our assimilation. Well, you know what? Like that that time is over. Mm. Like we need to now speak out. We need to now be people that no longer simply let other people, and when I say other people, I mean, you know, other races, people of other races speak for us yep. and determine our place in our society. Um it, it it needs to change. And you know, I think that that's one of the things that we're going to see happen. I hope to see happen. And that's part of the reason why like, you know, I came on board at this Asian American Christian Collaborative organization 
which is really trying to empower Asian American Christian voices and giving us a place where we can galvanize and empower our voices to speak out because that place didn't really exist. Um, even though in other races and other, you know, um, you know, people have had, have those organizations. Yep. I feel like Asian Americans really haven't. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wasn't looking for them, but I also agree with you that it's not a, you don't see them as prominently as you do, uh, you know, centers and organizations and teams around, you know, again, for, for African-American people and for other, other races and other ethnic groups, you don't, you just don't see that. Uh, right. and again, I don't know why you, you would, you would know much more than me. So you like me have a bunch of things going on, um, uh, both paid and unpaid. We're very busy just trying to keep it all together. I told Wait, I I'm not being paid for this. <laughs> you are not, <laughs> I will send you, I will send you, uh, I will send you something, but you are not getting paid for this. Um, so one of the things that you're involved in, you just mentioned it, you're the director of advancement at the Asian American Christian Collaborative, the AACC, the AACC. I don't know if that's how you say it, but, uh, um, talk to me about, because I don't know if there was some correlation with you getting involved there and in, in certain things happening in, in culture. How, how did you get involved? Why did you get involved? And, and let's lead into this, uh, national rally for API lives and dignity that uh, happened just a, a couple weeks ago that, you yeah. know, I saw some of the videos you posted on social media, very powerful, very moving, uh, happened all over the country. You were obviously involved in the one in, you know, New York City, since that's your neighboring city. So how and why did you get involved in that? Tell me a little bit more about that group. Yeah, you know, I think um, over the last year, just me, myself tuning in more to my Asian American identity um, and figuring out you know, sort of where my place is in all of this, I found an organization um, and individuals in that organization, uh, the AACC, that were very helpful sort of in my own journey. And, you know, not just exclusively them, but, you know, overall, you know, social media, I think, has been a very big tool for me, you know, accounts to follow, you know, things like that, uh, for me to learn more about race. Um, and I think there were a lot of people that were learning about you know, uh, black racism and Asian racism over these past couple of years, um, over these past couple of months. And so this organization, you know, I became friends with people within the organization. And so, uh, I decided to come on as a volunteer and, you know, I'm the director of advancement, which means, you know, I'm trying to, you know, help us raise money. Right. Um, and that's something that I have a little bit of experience with. And so I was like, yeah, if I can help out in that way, then I'd love to, um, after the Atlanta murders happened, um, you know, we recognized that this was a moment for us, that this was a galvanizing moment. And as we've talked about, and we started planning rallies. And so what ended up happening was a week after the, uh, the murders, there was a, um, a rally that was being planned in Atlanta. And then two days later, Chicago came on board and said, we're going to march at the same time as Atlanta. And we're going to rally and have a rally and uh, um, and gather people in solidarity. And then two days later, L.A. and New York came on board, mm. and then Houston and San Francisco and Austin and Detroit, and you know, city after city after city, until we got fourteen cities. Minneapolis came on the day before, literally the night before, and it was just this surge of people saying, "You know what? I don't want to sit this out." You know, even if we can just get on together in, you know, Seattle or in Boston or in Dallas, um, we want to be able to do something. And so we were in 14 cities, like 5,000 people all across the, these, uh, these cities, 
uh, that were standing in solidarity as Asian American Christians, praying, repenting, you know, calling out and speaking out against Asian American uh, violence. And it was just a powerful moment to see these rallies being led uh, by Asian American voices. Um, I'll tell you, I'm going back to my childhood. You know, there was this thing that was, I, it was just so ingrained in me, Nick, that when I would see exclusively Asian people on stage, I would like dismiss it. Mm. I'd be like, oh, it's like a niche thing. Oh, it's like a, oh, it's just like a Korean thing. And, you know, there were very, very, very few instances where there were Asian people on stage and white people in the audience. In fact, growing up, I can't think of any. Sure. Right? But th that Sunday, on Palm Sunday, right, we had thousands of people in all of these cities, and we had Asian people on stages and white people in the audience. And that's not everything, but there's something to that where you're getting the authority and respect and the dignity that you deserve in, in using your voice and speaking out that um, that I, I think is long overdue and that Asian people I think are learning. One of the things that I appreciated most about one of these rallies was, and I wish we did this in New York, was that they had actual people praying in different Asian languages in their mother tongue. Um, and I just, uh, that blew me away wow. to think about people who probably for their whole lives have been ostracized in society for their language are now being celebrated and honored because of that language, in their language. That that was a powerful moment for me. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Talk specifically about, because a lot of people, obviously, uh, of, of lots of different kinds of, or lots of different faith backgrounds, and people that have no faith at all have been speaking out over the last month or two against, you know, violence and hatred toward uh, Asian Americans. <clears throat> what is What is the Christian message here? Like, you know, I saw you on stage, I saw signs. Like, what is the Christian message here uh, in, a, in a circumstance like this? Like, what are the kinds of things that you all shared and said and prayed? Uh, and, and, I, and I ask this because, I mean, I, I know, lots of my listeners know, but Christian, um, like, I know what your answers are going to be, but <laughs> Christian, Christian's kind of an interesting, like, what does Christian mean right now, right? Like, right. that that... I won't go as far as saying that uh, maybe more than any other time in history, but that name and who associates with mm -hmm. it has been really put to the test over the last four or five years. I mean, yeah. more than ever, we've seen people that look nothing like Jesus uh, identify with that. And I get it. Yeah. Life is messy. We're all shitty sometimes. Like, I'm not looking for perfect, righteous, moral people. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's been some really, it's been really hard to identify as a Christian over the last few years and, and like kind of proclaim that and, and figure out how to navigate through that. So in a, in a situation like this where, you know, you're mourning the loss of, of just incredible people that, you know, were obviously killed too soon by, by a, a Christian, by a Christian, mm -hmm. by a Christian young man that has his like testimony recorded online and right. and goes to church and was an upstanding, you know, citizen and member of the church like so again that even adds, you know, muddies the waters even more. What is the what is what is the Christian message here? Yeah, I I think there's uh, I I really love this question because of the nuance behind it yeah. because when you say the word Christian, 
you know, you all of your listeners probably all have a different picture of what that means. Yep. And so I think it's important to actually flesh that out uh, a little bit about sort of like where, what, what do we mean and what is that overlap? Um, you know, first of all, I think that there is an aspect of just lament, right? There is just a, a, an aspect of mourning. Um, and so in each of the rallies, there were moments of this, this just real lament, just mourning over the loss of life uh, that happened in Atlanta. And, but more than that, it was just, it was more than just lamenting the, the loss of life. It was lamenting the racism in society, lamenting the, uh, the ways that the American church have allowed racialized, uh, you know, w w this racism to pervade into their subculture. And so there's a, there's a speaking out of, of lament and, and praying for God to sort of come and correct these things. But counter positive to that, right, is we can't just pray for God to descend and like snap his fingers and, you know, suddenly make all this go away. Um, there, there's a responsibility as Christians and there's a responsibility for justice, right? And you and I have talked about this quite a bit. There's a responsibility as a Christian to have justice be part of your discipleship. Yep. And I would say one thing that we're realizing is now we need racialized justice and racialized discourse uh, to be part of our discipleship in the church. Um, and, and I'm not just saying in white churches, right? I, what I'm saying is like if a white person or a black person walks into a predominantly Korean church, we need to have a racial discourse conversation in the discipleship of Koreans to be able to accept and welcome, uh, you know, a black person or a white person or a brown person to come into one of our services and vice versa. There needs to be a racial discourse in our conversations in churches to allow for people to not ignore race, but to actually lean into race and learn how to, um, be the people of God to people of other races. So I think there's that idea of justice, um, you know, as well. Um, and then the only other thing I would say, I mean, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, right. but I think the only other thing I would say is that, you know, really the conciliatory, you know, peacemaking, bridge building aspect of Christians of, you know, wanting to bring healing to the society. And I'm uh, by, by no means am I saying that, you know, Christians have exclusive rights on any of these things. In fact, I think in many ways we're learning from other segments in society about how to do it and how to do it well. Um, and, but, but wanting to do it in a way that honors God, but also honors the you know, humanity of others. That's really helpful. I think people, that's a very succinct, um, super, super helpful way because, and I'm glad you said the last thing you just said, which is, we don't have the monopoly on uh, justice and you know doing good and loving others. I, I, I've said so many times over this last four or five years that you know the most loving, just incredible people in my life are. I, I, I have several friends who are Baha'i, and um, like if I was not a Christian, I would be Baha'i. Every Baha'i I know are incredible people. They are they are filled with peace. They have a huge bent toward justice. They have just a really tight-knit community. There are no, there are no, you know, leaders that are acting and living megalomaniacally. Um, it's just a really great community. A lot of my Muslim friends, just amazing justice-seeking people, right? So I want my listeners to hear that as well. I am a, uh, a, a, a Christian, they all know that, a very reluctant Christian these days, not because I don't, I have any plan, I have any plans on leaving, but just because of the nuances, right, of sure. being called that I, I try to identify more with Jesus 
than the Christian faith right now, because what does that even mean? So mm -hmm. I think that's important. I'm glad you mentioned that sort of to wrap that up, that like there are so many people listening right now that come from all faith backgrounds, no faith background. We can all do this, right? Everything you yeah. just mentioned, the morning, man, we, mm -hmm. we do not, that's an important piece. And I'm glad you started there and ended the way you did. We need to, all of us that seek justice, we need to begin a lot of our seeking justice with mourning and kind of sadness and crying and feeling the weight of whatever it is we're going after. That is, I have seen that in my personal life, in different groups that I've led, coming out of that mourning to go actually do the work is I have a much better chance of actually getting shit done that way. Like we actually, right. we actually finish the task because our motivation is it's, it's as pure as it can be as, as kind of, uh, as very tr the troubled humans we are, right? Like if you start with the mourning and the really just feeling it, one of the reasons that I think our, this country has done so bad through this pandemic, right? Is we have not, we look at this number, 550, 60,000 people have died. Yeah. Like think about that. If yeah. you start to think about that number, the moms, the dads, the brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles. We are one country, and we have one quarter of the deaths in, in the entire globe. When you start thinking about that, then you can like get to work and say, you know what? I'm tired. We've been in this whole thing for a year, but it's not over yet. We've got to stay vigilant. Right. We've got to stay careful. But if if you're just if if you don't start there in that place of like really feeling what's been lost and what what what, what isn't coming back. Again, whether it's a whether it's racism or police brutality or a pandemic, I feel like we have the best chance possible of getting the task done if we start with mourning. And again, that can happen for anybody, faith or no faith. Right. And and you know, I think I will have a conversation with anyone if they start with lament, right? I'll tell you about my experience as an Asian American. And if you can sit in lament with me, yeah over the pain that I have received, that Asian American people have re uh, received, if we can sit and lament with our black brothers and sisters over the pain that they have endured in their life, that prepares us to have the next conversation about policy, about statistics, about change, about all of these things. But when we start, and, and this is what happens on Facebook, is we start with quotes and we start with stats and we start with opinions. There's never, there, I mean, Facebook is not the place for lament, right? No. But, but, but when you, when you start with the opinions, then, you know, you don't actually care about me. You don't care about my experience. You're trying to educate me. You're trying to come over the top with me. And so, but if you, if everybody took the moment mm. to just sit and learn and listen, and I'm going to sit in your pain. I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to agree with everything that you say, but as a human to human, can I sit with you as you tell me your pain? Absolutely. Yeah, that's beautiful. So for those listening that want to do something, and I'm talking about all of the non-Asian people listening right now, they, they, they don't know that experience. They might be black or Latino or otherwise, but they don't know the Asian American experience. And if, if you had a chance to like, you know, grab everybody by the shoulders and say, here are a few things that you can do. Like if you're interested in having an impact here, here are some things you can do right away to, uh, you know, to, to know more about what's going on and to be able to act, you know, properly and rightly 
to to be you know to be a really good ally here. What would you? What are what are a few things that you would uh, ask everybody here? General enough that everybody could could take action on these. Yeah, I think it's it's very simple. And and you know, Nick, when I see your stuff, when I listen to your podcast, and I see what you're about. It's very similar, I think, the way that I've tried to live my life, you know, um, and and that is, you know, looking to people who are vulnerable, looking to people who are overlooked, looking to people who, uh, you know, speaking out for people who don't have the voice in society or don't have the standing in society. And I think that that's basically it. And that that is, you can apply that to Asian American people, you can apply that to uh, anybody, you can apply that to people, you know, in your family, you could talk about, you know, people in your workplace, wherever you are, if you look to the vulnerable people, look to the people who are being overlooked and, and, and not, you know, and dismissed and, you know, people who are not being heard, look to those people and give them dignity, give them a hearing and, and give them a seat at the table and give them an opportunity to use their voice and to, and you using your power can amplify their voice, right? I mean, we're talking about this whole idea of privilege. You know, it's like this big buzzword that everybody's been talking about over the last couple of years. And so, you know, there's so much about privilege that you can't control, right? Like you and I, we we born into a you know certain segment of privileged society, but we weren't we didn't choose where we were born. No. We didn't choose what city our parents lived in. Like oh, so much of privilege is determined by decisions that are not us and not controlled by us and not choices that we've made. But we all have a choice to take whatever privilege we have and point that privilege to people who are underprivileged. And that's that's all it is, right? So white people, you know, look around at the Asian people in your uh, life and say, if I have privilege, more power and more privilege than they do, let me take my privilege and point it towards amplifying the people that don't have that same power and that same standing. And you know what? They may be someone that don't, that, that doesn't speak your language, that doesn't, you know, that, and it may take longer and it may be in broken English. It may be a different generation. It may be all of these things, but it's still worth it. Because what you're doing is you're taking your privilege and pointing it to the underprivileged. Super helpful. And, you know, the simplicity of the ask that you just made of everyone, there's a lot of components there, right? Um, you know, as people dive into that, that, that suggestion, that sort of step forward, there's going to be a lot of questions they have to answer, right? It's, it's, it's a very simple ask that's not so simple once you start getting into it. But the actual, like, first step, super simple. We all have people... Um, around us, every white person listening. If they don't, then you must live like in the boonies somewhere um, where you don't have a lot of people around. But most of us, whether it's at school or work or play or wherever, we have people around us that don't have as much privilege as we do. And it's so simple. There are so, there are so many simple ways that we can begin today to hand them the microphone that again, yeah. we, we didn't ask to be given. So it's not, so I don't want people to feel bad for being white and privileged. That's not it. Yeah. It's for you to recognize your privilege and say, who can I give some of this away to? Right. Right. Absolutely. I I, I want to kind of come full circle. Uh, you know, we kind of dove right into the deep end uh, in this conversation. I, I did mention that you know your work with the uh, you know Asian American Christian Collaborative, but I do want to also talk for a few minutes before we you know before we end today about some of the other stuff you're doing because it's all incredible. Like you're you're doing so many amazing things. So let's talk about 
we spent a lot of the last conversation a couple of years ago talking about your work at IJM, International Justice Mission. But that role has changed. And as I pointed out at the beginning, a lot of people, even if they listen to it, don't remember that conversation. So you are now the, uh, the last year and a half or so, the Global Officer of Public Engagement at International Justice Mission. I love IJM. Many people listening love IJM. Talk about who and what IJM is and also your specific role. It's a, it's a super important role. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, International Justice Mission is a human rights organization that basically looks at uh, vulnerable people in society, just like we've been talking about. They look at vulnerable people in societies all across the world, and they say, you know, there are people that are left vulnerable to violence in their communities, whether that's through human trafficking, whether that is through uh, intermittent partner violence or, you know, sexual abuse of children. Um, And we look at those people and say, we want to protect those people. We want to rescue them from their immediate uh, threat of danger and violence. But we also want to protect the community so that the the whole community as a whole does not face that threat of everyday violence. But what we've realized is that you, it's not just a simple, you know, taking the people that are in, um, that are vulnerable to violence and just providing protection. It's actually realizing that we have to ladder up into the justice system in order to work and get lasting and scalable and effective change of protection. And so what we do is we actually work with law enforcement. We work with aftercare, social services. We work with, um, you know, the courts and lawyers and judges in the countries that we work to basically to be able to bring, uh, to strengthen these justice systems, to bring about change that will then ladder back down into the communities uh, by their own governments to provide protection for the most vulnerable. So on the ground, what it means is we 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 rescue slaves, um, but we also you know will work in the justice systems to make sure that the prosecutors are learning the best ways to uh, handle these cases, so that cases that don't involve IJM are further, you know, are more successful in these communities because of the lessons that we've learned together over the years that we've worked in these communities. My favorite thing, one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to the work of IJM is, I mean, the the very mission and vision of the work is, it's just, it's cloaked in humility. It is not, we're going to come in and save everybody. It is, Rather, it's, we know that we can't fix everything. We don't understand the nuances of your culture. We don't understand how Mm -hmm. your government works. So we are going to use our expertise to come in and work alongside your police force, your government, your justice system. And that also, I mean, again, first of all, it's humility. I see humility there. But then also there's a better chance, as you just pointed out at the end of your your little uh, description there, there's a better chance of them being able to continue to doing this work once you all have packed up and gone, like moved on to other projects and places, right? They can keep doing it because you, you left, inf- you didn't have to even create new infrastructure. You just taught the current infrastructure how to do it well, what to look out right. for, what h- how to navigate these pretty difficult, you know, uh, uh, things. So yeah, I've always, I've always said, Good organizations, like nonprofit organizations, good organizations will do the work that the government is unable or unwilling to do. Great organizations will work with the government to get them to do it themselves, right? Because that's ultimately what will create lasting, enduring change uh, is essentially working ourselves out of a job 
in these communities. And we've actually done that. We've done that in Cambodia. We've done that in the Philippines where we've actually transitioned the, our resources to move away from different casework because the, the government has stepped up and is actually doing it themselves. And so like, that's a huge win for us to be able to see the government stepping up and doing that and championing that work themselves. In your specific role, what does that entail? Yeah. So as the global officer of public engagement, what I get to do is I get to uh, train and equip our speakers. Uh, and when I say speakers, we're talking staff, but also survivors, right? I mean, the survivor leader voice is this really powerful, um, world-changing influence because it's somebody who knew, who knows exactly what we're talking about firsthand. And so I get to, to work with and stand alongside our staff and survivors so that as we speak across in the global stage, that we, we're you know equipped to be able to say the things that we need to say uh, in the way that we need to say them uh, to bring about the change that we need to see in whatever audience we're in front of. I love that. You're also a uh, so everybody should go check out IJM, donate, share it with everybody. Just a wonderful organization. You're also an advisory board member at One Day's Wages. And if people are kind of faithful listeners of this podcast, they'll remember Eugene Cho. Uh, he was on, you know, uh, a few months ago, we talked about his book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, um, which I learned from, you know, quite a bit. Not that I try to be a jerk, but I am, <laughs> I am sometimes. Um, uh, Eugene's just amazing. So but as a refresher, as a reminder for people that listened to that and forgot or didn't listen to it at all, what's your role look like on that team? And what is One Day's Wages? It's a beautiful, beautiful concept. Yeah, uh, One Day's Wages is a global poverty organization that basically works to mobilize people uh, to raise awareness, but also raise funds to be able to uh, combat poverty um, in, uh, in different ways in different countries. Um, and so I, I, my role as an advisory board member, I've known Eugene for years, we've been friends for a long time. And so, um, you know, it, it, my role as an advisory board member is to be able to take my experiences that I have throughout, you know, my career and be able to uh, sort of bring a sliver of, you know, expertise to uh, that phenomenal team that's doing great work over there at One Day's Wages. Um, and, you know, it, it's a little bit of a smaller organization, but, you know, when you think about uh, where 2020 was and you think about all of these small to mid-sized uh, nonprofit organizations where they were left scrambling, right? Because yep. they didn't know what the economy was going to be and this and that. Like, I'm just so thrilled, uh, you know, to to see them up and still thriving and doing great work, you know, even after the, you know, during and after the pandemic. Yeah. It's been a wild year. I, I'm so grateful that so many organizations like One Day's Wages have held on for dear life because yeah. we, we, we are going to need them after this. And I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some other things that you're a part of, but I do want to also mention uh, you're also a podcast host. You're a fellow podcast host. That's um, right. Your podcast, you know, The Pursuit. I just listened to your conversation with Kate the other day, um, which super great conversation about the Waterfall Mansion in New York. Just, just yeah. she seems amazing. Brilliant. Uh, talk about your podcast for anybody that's looking to find, you know, uh, uh, great conversations. They're, they're, you know, faith conversations, but, you know, you do a great job, uh, you know, pulling out all kinds of different things. It's not, a, it's not all like Bible and Jesus and this and that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a variety of people doing a variety of different things, you know, kind of coming back around faith. But talk about the podcast for a second for those that want to like learn more about you and hear you talk some more. Yeah. The whole idea, the whole premise of the podcast was, 
is really this idea of, I, I knew so many people with just such fascinating life journey stories. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's from a faith perspective, but it's also just about life, right? I mean, it, and, and there's so much about their lives that is translatable to people outside of the faith, um, but it's really about their life journey. And the premise of it is uh, understanding that where they are now is a result of a lifelong journey of of you know, sort of God's sovereignty, but also like providential decisions that they've made that 20 years ago they didn't realize it would set them on a course to to converge at the moment where they are right now, um, and and so sort of taking this this life journey and using that as a way to encourage my listeners to be able to say you know wherever you are in your life right now you may not know where your journey ends but you can find God all along the path right so no matter where you're what you're feeling along your journey, you can still find God because look at all these other people, you know, who tried to, you know, leave their careers or, you know, do all these different things, um, you know, and felt all of these different, um, you know, pains and, and, and along their journey and let that be an encouragement to people who are listening. I love it. I want to thank you for a few things here at the end of our time together. One is I want to thank you for uh, doing a podcast with me at 9 and 10 p.m. your time. So that's number one. I also want to thank you for doing a podcast with me six hours notice because you're you're amazing like that. But there, you know, as we talked about last week when I had to cancel or postpone rather, you know, there is some timely, there's a, there's a timeliness to this conversation. Um, there's something important about not capitalizing on the shit that's happening in the world, but like using while we're just thinking about it some more to really, you know, really get involved. So thank you for, you know, on a short notice for, uh, you know, doing this. I also want to, you know, before we started recording, you and I were talking a little bit about imposter syndrome. And I want to affirm that you're doing a lot of different things. And I want you to know that I think you are more than qualified to be doing each and every one of them. You have a really important voice. Um, you know your shit and you've been doing this for a long time. And so I, in this time when you could feel, you know, you said this has been a decades long journey of just like healing and, you know, developing as a, you know, as a Korean American, you know, the, the assimilation and at certain points trying to be, you know, more white and all those things. Like, I want you to feel like, super whole and complete as is you are a you know just a, a wonderful human doing wonderful things so as you continue to heal uh even during this time where your people are under attack you know or, or at least we're we're talking about it more and we're seeing it more i want you to feel um i want you to feel complete in all the stuff that you're doing i want you to feel like no you you should you can should be doing all the things that you're doing, and it's a very important work. So for whatever it's worth, like I want you to feel, I want you to really feel that. I'm not just saying that to kind of heap praise on you. Like you, you have a very important uh, voice. You're doing very important work. So just know that I and we are rooting for you as you continue to do those things. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Mom, did you, did you hear that? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, mom, listen. Um, <laughs> Thanks, brother, so much. This was a this was a pleasure, and I know people will. You helped us so much think through a lot of the things that are happening in culture. Um, a lot of people that listen to this show are people of faith uh, on on a, on a wide you know spectrum, and so a lot of this is going to resonate with so many people. So uh, thank you for doing it. <laughs>
Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time, man. Friends, thank you so much for spending some time with Richard and me today. To learn more about Richard and all things Let's Give a Damn, please visit letsgiveadamn.com. If you're still listening at this point, you're a real one. So as soon as this podcast is over, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on whichever podcast app you use to listen to this show. It would mean so much to me, and it means a lot for what we're trying to create here. Thank you for showing up today. I'm so immensely grateful for you. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. The music is by our friend Propaganda, and you can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. And until next time, bye for now. Thank you.